Section 1 of Lives of the Saints with Reflections for Every Day of the Year by Reverend Alvin Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Therese. The Lives of the Saints with Reflections for Every Day of the Year by Reverend Alvin Butler. Section 1 The Movable Feasts. Movable feasts are so called because they have no fixed place in the calendar, their celebration happening sooner or later, year by year, according as the Feast of Easter itself occurs at a different period. The latter feast is always celebrated on the Sunday which accompanies or follows the first full moon after the spring equinox. As the movable feasts afford useful lessons, we ought to take them fully to heart. Advent the time of Advent cannot exactly be considered festal, nor can it be classed among the movable feasts, and yet the first day of Advent is, in another sense, movable, inasmuch as it happens always on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, which festival itself falls on different days of the week. Advent means coming, and the four weeks whereof it consists represents the four thousand years which preceded the coming of the Son of God into this world. Formerly, Advent time was observed by fasting, abstinence, and mortification, but not in a manner so rigorous as that of Lent. Notwithstanding the alleviations which the Church has thought well to introduce in the course of time, Advent has still remained a period of recollection and prayer. The true Christian ought to take advantage thereof, and by pious yearnings entreat for the coming of the Son of God into his heart by grace, and into the world at large by the spreading of the gospel. Reflection. All the days in which I am now in warfare, I await until my change come. Thou shalt call me, and I will answer thee. Quinquagesima Sunday, the Forty-Hours Devotion. Quinquagesima Sunday is the third day preceding Ash Wednesday. That holy season is approaching when the Church denies herself her songs of joy, in order the more forcibly to remind us, her children, that we are living in a Babylon of spiritual danger, and to excite us to regain that genuine Christian spirit which everything in the world around us is striving to undermine. If we are obliged to take part in the amusements of the few days before Lent, let it be with a heart deeply imbued with the maxims of the Gospel. But as a substitute for frivolous amusements and dangerous pleasures, the Church offers a feast surpassing all earthly enjoyments, and a means whereby we can make some amends to God for the insults offered to His Divine Majesty. The Lamb that taketh away the sins of the world is exposed upon our altars. On this His throne of mercy He receives the homage of those who come to adore Him and acknowledge Him for their King. He accepts the repentance of those who come to tell Him how grieved they are at having followed any other master and he offers himself again to his eternal Father as a propitiation for those sinners who yet treat his favors with indifference. It was the pious Cardinal Gabriel Pacalti, Archbishop of Bologna, who in the sixteenth century first originated the admirable devotion of the Forty Hours. His object in this solemn exposition of the Most Blessed Sacrament was to offer to the Divine Majesty some compensation for the sins of man and at the very time when the world was busiest in deserving his anger, to appease it by the sight of his own Son, the mediator between heaven and earth. Pope Benedict XIV granted many indulgences to all the faithful of the papal states 
who, during these days, should visit our Lord in this mystery of his love, and should pray for the pardon of sinners. This favor, at first so restricted, afterwards was extended by Pope Clement Thirteenth to the universal church. Thus, the forty hours' devotion has spread throughout the whole world, and become one of the most solemn expressions of Catholic piety. Reflection Let us then go apart, for at least one short hour, from the dissipation of earthly enjoyments and kneeling in the presence of our Jesus, merit the grace to keep our hearts innocent and detached. Ash Wednesday Man drawn from the dust must return to it, and all that he does, meanwhile, with the exception of what good he may achieve, is but dust and vanity. The good alone survives. Such are the truths which the Church wishes to engrave in the memory, but still more in the hearts of her children, by the sprinkling of ashes on this first day of Lent. This custom dates from the first century of the Church, and was then observed, not toward all the faithful without distinction, but toward public sinners, who had submitted themselves to canonical penance, to obtain thereby reconciliation with the Church, and admission to a share in the Divine Eucharist. The bishop imposed on them the obligation of wearing the hair-shirt and penitent garb, placing ashes on their head, and then excluding them from the church until the day of Easter. Meanwhile, they had to remain humbly prostrate at the church porch, imploring the prayers of those who, more happy than they, might assist at the divine mysteries within the sacred building. The custom of putting ashes on the head in token of penitence is even more ancient than Christianity. The Jews practiced it, and the holy King David tells us that he had submitted to the observance. It may be said rather to date from the first ages of the world. For the holy man, Job, long before even the time of Moses, followed the custom. Nothing is, in fact, more calculated to lead the sinner to enter into himself than the remembrance of his last end. Nothing is better fitted to beat down pride and put a check on futile projects and guilty purposes than a terrible and sad memento. Remember that thou art but dust." empires, riches, honors, and dignities, resplendent palaces, triumphal cars, fair adornments, beauty, strength, and power, all crumble away, and their very possessor is but a ruin, and ere a few days has sped, will have dwindled into dust. Reflection Bear ever in mind, then, men and sinners, that you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. THE FIVE WINGS OF OUR LORD Ye that delight in decking your head with costly and superb adornments, who love to cumber your hands with gold and precious jewels, who revel in luxury and in soft garments, approach and see to what a condition Jesus Christ, your Captain and Savior, is reduced. His head is crowned with thorns and streaming with blood, and every base indignity heaped thereon by ruffian executioners. His feet and hands are pierced by nails, his side gaping with a wide-open wound. Such are the mournful accents uttered by the church on the first Friday of Lent, two days after she had strewed ashes on the head of the faithful. For you it is, she exclaims, that the Son of God, the Word made flesh, has undergone these heart-rending affronts, with intent to expiate your evil doings, and to teach you that the idol of your body, which you deck out with so much care and eager delight, deserves, on the contrary, not but affliction and suffering. How can you, while wreathing yourselves with flowers, 
venture to travel in the footsteps of a master who bears a thorny crown. And with what mind do you propose becoming the disciples of such a master? That forehead made lustrous with borrowed splendor, those limbs delicately clad and brilliantly adorned, will first become the food of the grave worm, and afterward the prey of that fire that quenched not, if you strive not to bend them down to that lowliness which is native to them, to the state of subjection for which they were created, and to the penitence they have merited by reason of sin. Reflection May the contemplation of the wounds of our Savior engrave deeply in our mind the maxim uttered by his own divine lips, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The Most Precious Blood of Our Lord Jesus Christ The Church, inspired by the Holy Ghost, has established a special feast in honor of the Most Precious Blood of Our Lord. This saving blood was first shed at the circumcision of the Divine Infant. It was next poured out in the bloody sweat of agony in the Garden of Olives. Again it flowed under the cruel blows of the savage soldiery. Then, when the crown of thorns was pressed into his temples, and finally when one of the soldiers with a spear opened his side, and there came out blood and water. St. Augustine, explaining these words of St. John, points out that the evangelist does not use the word struck or wounded, but says distinctly, One of the soldiers with a spear opened his side, that we may understand thereby that the gate of life was opened, and from that sacred side issued all those sacraments of the church, without which we can never hope to gain eternal life. This precious blood was symbolized by the victim of the old law, but while these latter sacrifices served only to purify the outer man, the blood of Jesus Christ, by virtue of his infinite efficacy, washes us free from all sin, provided we avail ourselves of the means established by our divine Savior in his church for the application of its infinite merits. Reflection. Let us taste, then, to profit by the graces offered us. Let us wash away the stains of sin in the sacrament of penance, and nourish ourselves with the most blessed body and blood of the Holy Eucharist. Let us ever be attentive at Mass, where this adorable blood mystically pours forth, again upon the altar, to plead our cause before the throne of divine justice. The Seven Dolors of the Blessed Virgin Eve, when placed by the hand of God in a garden of delights, received but one precept to be obeyed so as to be forever happy, a precept easy of accomplishment, the non-observance whereof should need be inexcusable, inasmuch as neither urgent want nor strong inclination led to its violation. There was conjoined, moreover, the assurance of death following inevitably upon the transgression of the precept. But the serpent, kindling with jealousy and hate, came to tempt her. She gazed on the forbidden fruit, gathered thereof, and carried it to her husband, and together they ate, incurring the fatal loss and involving mankind in their downfall. Mary, preceded by the God-made man, went toiling with him up the arid steep of Calvary, in order to accomplish the most heart-rending of all sacrifices. Eve had rebelled. Mary surrendered her will. Eve had yielded to the enticing voice of the tempter. Mary heard the voice of the same demon of jealousy and hate, uttering by the mouth of the impious Jews blasphemies and maledictions, but she was not frightened from her purpose. Eve, in her disobedience, stretched forth her hand toward the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Mary, in her submission to the designs of God, stretches forth hers to the tree of the cross. Eve had sacrificed to her caprice the spouse through whom she had received being. Mary assists at the sacrifice of the son to whom she has given being. Eve was born of man without the agency of a mother. Mary gave birth to the man-god without the intervention of a spouse. Eve, after her disobedience, became the mother, in the order of nature, of a race accursed. Mary, through her submission, has become, in the order of grace, the mother of a race sanctified. These points of resemblance and contrast offer themselves spontaneously to the mind, provided we ponder somewhat over the remembrance celebrated by the Church on the Friday in Holy Week, under the title of The Seven Dolors of the Blessed Virgin. A mother's hand can alone comprehend the agony of torture endured by this mother at the foot of the cross, whereon her son was immolated. We do not attempt to describe, nor are any mere human lips indeed able to express it. Reflection let us adore this divine and mysterious abyss of charity, in whose depths our salvation was worked out at the price of so much suffering, and let us bear in mind what we have cost that mother to whose guardianship we were made over even from the sublime height of the cross. The Most Holy Crown of Thorns of Our Lord Jesus Christ The Most Holy Crown of Thorns, consecrated by the head and the blood of our divine Savior, has always been looked upon as one of the most precious relics. Having been carried to Constantinople, it was there carefully kept, during the reign of the French emperors up to the beginning of the 13th century. At that time the emperor, Baldwin II, was sorely pressed by the Saracens and Greeks, and considering Constantinople as no longer secure, he sent the precious relic to his cousin, St. Louis, who accepted it with delight. St. Louis, in requital, afterward voluntarily paid off a large sum which the emperor had borrowed from the Venetians. In 1239, the sacred treasure was carried in a sealed case, with great devotion, by holy men, to France. St. Louis, accompanied by many prelates and his entire court, met it five leagues beyond Sens. The pious king, with his brother, Robert of Rotoist, both barefooted, carried it into that city to the cathedral of St. Stephen, accompanied by a numerous procession. Two years after, it was taken to Paris, where it was received with great solemnity, and placed in the Holy Chapel, which St. Louis built for its reception. Every year on the 11th of August, the transfer of this relic from Venice to Paris is celebrated in the Holy Chapel. Palm Sunday Lessons without end, at once lofty and hallowing, might be deduced from the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, celebrated by the Church on this day. We limit ourselves, however, to considering the event under one aspect merely in order to draw therefrom a moral lesson for our spiritual instruction. Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem, and the people forthwith improvise a triumph all the more noble because it has cost neither blood nor tears, and so much the more touching because it is spontaneous. The whole town is in commotion, the roadway is strewn with branches and covered with the garments of the bystanders every mouth resounding with acclamations and blessings and praise. Jesus Christ is proclaimed the Son of David, the King of the nation, and the Messiahs. Ere a few days are sped, the very people that had applauded now clamor for his death, curse and insult him, and assist at his degrading death with fiendish cries of triumph. Even thus pass away the glories of the world, its joys, its possessions, 
even life itself. Today at the height of greatness, tomorrow in the deepest abasement. But yesterday the idol of a nation, today the object of its hate, now surrounded with prosperity, and yet a little while borne down by misfortune. One day full of life and vigor, and the next consigned to the tomb. Foolish, then, are they who would account as of any value, or would cling to things perishable. What bitter awakenings have not such poor, deluded beings to expect, and what chagrin and tearful disappointments do they not create for themselves? The Christian who places the aim of his hopes in the center of his affections at a higher range is both wiser and more happy. Prosperity does not blind nor inebriate him, since he knows it to be capricious and changeful. Adverse fortune does not overwhelm him, because he was prepared for it and awaited it with calmness. The unforeseen alone affords any ground for fear, and to the faithful Christian there is nothing that is unforeseen. Reflection The recommendation given by the great apostle may be aptly brought to mind. And they that weep be as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that use this world as though they used it not, for the fashion of this world passeth away. Maundy Thursday On Thursday, the eve of the Passion, Jesus Christ took bread, and having blessed it, broke and distributed it to his apostles, saying to them, Take and eat, this is my body, which shall be delivered for you. Then taking the chalice, he blessed and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of this, for this is the chalice of my blood, which shall be shed for you. He thereafter added, this do in remembrance of me. These words, in all their precision, simplicity, and clearness, contain the institution of the adorable sacrament of the Eucharist, an irrefragable proof of the real presence of Jesus Christ in the sacrament, and the demonstration of his perpetuity in the church. But, rather than indulging in reasoning, let us set forth, briefly, the principal effect. Jesus Christ, before instituting it, had said that this sacrament would communicate life eternal to those receiving it, and this, in one aspect at least, and so far as it is given to man to understand the mysteries of God, is incomprehensible. Sin had implanted in man the germ of death and vice. By reason of his disobedience, man had become incapable of good, or even of a holy thought, as the great apostle tells us. Now, in God is the source of being, life, good, virtue, and all excellence. God, by communicating himself substantially to man by means of this august sacrament, implants the germ of immortality and virtue. Man, if limited to his own powers, could not even think out a useful way of becoming virtuous, for whence should he take the principle of virtue and the means of putting it into practice? He would consequently have to incur eternal loss, since salvation without virtue is a thing utterly impossible. But once pervaded with the principle of grace by an intimate union with God, he has only to let it develop and to cultivate the good seed sown in him. Thus does the diamond, of itself colorless and dim, absorb the light when exposed thereto, becoming a sparkling center of light and shining with a radiant luster. The more vivid the light, the more brightly will the diamond shine if it be pure. In like manner, the more man launches himself into the divine substance, the more will he therewith be inundated by Holy Communion. The more potent, also, will his life become in virtues 
strong and manifold, and consequently ensure claims to salvation. Reflection With what respect, love, and order are we not to receive this divine food, which maketh to live forever? Good Friday Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross about midday, expired thereon in the afternoon, and was taken down in the evening toward sunset or the sixth hour. According to the language of St. Paul, thus did he, by his blood, pacify heaven and earth. If this form of expression convey not simply the reconciliation of heaven with earth, it veils a mystery impenetrable to feeble reason. But this very reconciliation is in itself the greatest mystery, for man always vainly tries to explain it by recurring to comparisons and considerations of human conception merely, which are vastly insufficient from the fact of their being human. And what matters it, after all, whether we understand or not so great a mystery? Enough for us that it has produced its effect, and that we are able to adore it in gratitude and love. That philosophy should rail at what it does not fathom is sheer foolishness. Incredulity may scoff at what it does not recognize. It concerns it, however, to know whether reason be on its side. Let heresy explain, after human fashion, things divine. As for us Christians, let us fix our gaze on the mediator between God and man, raised aloft between heaven and earth, with arms outstretching in order to enfold the universe, with head down bent to give to the world the kiss of peace and reconciliation. After having at the cost of his blood, purchase peace. And let us humble our whole being in heartfelt thanksgiving and love. Let us reverently imprint our lips on this cross, the instrument of our salvation. Let us bend down trembling before the just God, who takes such noble revenge for our guilt. By our work let us make some return for the price we have cost. By our penitence and tears let us apply to ourselves the merit of his redemption and henceforth live only for heaven, since we have been made heirs to heaven. Reflection The cross, to the Jews indeed a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles foolishness, is, withal, the instrument of Christ's power and of the wisdom of God. Holy Saturday Three hours after Jesus Christ had uttered his last sigh on the cross, two of his disciples, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, went to ask Pilate for the body, that they might give it burial. Having obtained it, they embalmed it according to the custom of the Jews, and deposited it not far from the place of Calvary, in a tomb hewn in the rock, wherein no one had yet been laid. Pilate caused the entrance to be sealed up, and placed a guard over it, lest the body should be taken away. The Savior thus remained from nightfall on the Friday till the first rays of dawn on the Sunday. He had himself said that he was to pass this time in the tomb, and had quoted as an example the abiding of the prophet Jonas for the same space of time in the whale's belly. It was then a real death that was associated with these signs and precautions, and the sacrifice had been consummated and was irrevocable. Well might we then marvel at such excess of love, covering ourselves with confusion at the thought of how feebly we love him who hath so greatly loved us, and of how little we do for him who hath accomplished so much for us. But we should enter upon another consideration. With Jesus Christ died also the ancient world, with its hideous worship, the synagogue with its symbols and mysteries, and the man of sin, 
the old Adam with its concupiscences, yea, even death itself, which had been inflicted on man in punishment for sin. With Jesus Christ died sin, and sin was placed in the tomb with him, for according to the beautiful expression of the Apostle, the Savior fastened the sins of men to the cross. Now the cross itself was buried on the spot where Christ had suffered, as was the custom among the Jews, and it was fully shown by the finding thereof in conjunction with those of the two thieves, three centuries later, by St. Helen. Whence it follows that among us Christians, the disciples, that is, of Christ, and regenerated by his death, there ought never to lurk any shadow of Jewish superstition or pagan morals, any remnant of the old Adam or man of sin. Concupiscences, disorderly passions, and love of the world should no longer exist, but as the memory of a time that is no more. Reflection For we are buried together with him by baptism unto death, that is, Christ is risen from the dead by the glory of his Father, so we also may walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also of his resurrection, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin may be destroyed, and that we may serve sin no longer. Easter Sunday The resurrection of the dead is one of the most consoling truths of Christianity. To die forever would be the most terrible of all destinies. The plant and the animal, unendowed with reason, die, never to live again. But they have not, at least, any apprehension as to what death is. To die is to them one of a thousand accidents bound up with life. To the plant it is as nothing, and for the animal, without reason, a merely transitory pain, death itself being but the affair of a moment. For man, on the contrary, death has terrors which precede it, anguish accompanying it, and apprehensions consequent upon it. The most strongly attempered spirit shudders on reflecting that it must incur death. The most selfish man has attachments which he with difficulty severs. The most determined unbeliever experiences doubts as to the shadowy tomorrow of death. Man would then be the most pitiable among all beings for religion not at hand to say to him, The grave is a place of momentary rest. You will come forth thence one day. The God that gave being to your limbs will restore them. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives thereof an assured pledge. This confidence in the future resurrection is a subject of the greatest joy to the children of God, the groundwork of their faith, the mainspring of their hope, and the most lasting comfort amid the evils of this life. For if Christ had not risen, says the Apostle St. Paul, in vain would we believe in him. He would be convicted of having been an impostor, and his apostles of being mad. His death would not have availed us anything, and we should still be dwelling in the bonds of sin. Those dying in Jesus Christ would perish, and our hope in him not extending beyond the present life, we should be the most unfortunate of men. After having had, as our portion in this life, sufferings and afflictions, we should not be able to console ourselves with the expectation of future good. But Jesus Christ, having come forth living from the tomb, his doctrine is confirmed by his resurrection. It establishes the certitude of his mission in his character as Son of God, the efficacy of the sacrifice he offered on the cross, the divinity of his priesthood, the rewards of the other life, and the glorified resurrection of the flesh. Reflection We shall one day rise again. 
but let us range by the side of such a consoling expectation that terrible warning of the prophet daniel many of those asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some unto life everlasting and others unto reproach eternal the ascension the mystery which the church honors on this day is at the same time that of the triumph of jesus christ and the hallowed hope of his disciples the saviour after having accomplished his mission on earth ascends to heaven to put his manhood in possession of the glory due to it and to prepare for us an abiding place he ascends thither as our king liberator chief and mediator our king because he has purchased us at the cost of his blood our liberator because he has conquered death and sin and has ransomed us from the thraldom of satan our chief because he wishes that we should follow in his footsteps and that we should be where he is even as he has himself declared our mediator because we can have access to the father only through him he ascends thither as our high priest in order to offer unceasingly to god the blood which he has shed for us in his character of man and to obtain for us through the merits of his sacrifice the remission of our sins let us then by means of faith follow him in his ascension to heaven and abide there henceforth in heart and spirit let us remember that heaven is wholly ours as our inheritance and amid the temptations and miseries of this life let us think often of this home of peace of glory and of bliss eternal we must not flatter ourselves however that without earnest efforts on our part we shall have any share in the kingdom of jesus christ there are many mansions in the house of our heavenly father but there are not many roads leading thither jesus christ has traced out for us the way of humiliation and suffering and it is the only one that conducts to eternal peace if the hardships of the journey and the sight of our weakness strike us with dread we should gather energy by leaning on the promises of the god-man he will be with us even unto the end and if we love him all will become easy reflection let us cherish hope christ being come a high priest of the good things to come hath entered into the holy of holies by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption whit sunday fifty days after easter the apostle and disciples of jesus christ were assembled in an upper chamber engaged in prayer according to the recommendation of the divine master and awaiting the accomplishment of the promise he had made to them of sending them a comforting spirit the paraclete who should teach them all things lo a great noise as of a rushing tempest was suddenly heard the house was rocked to and fro and tongues of fire were seen resting on the head of each one at once all were changed into new men their minds being endowed with full understanding of the scriptures and of the wonders they had hitherto witnessed without comprehending and their souls were filled with strength from on high thenceforth they belonged no more to themselves but to the work of the gospel from that time forth this divine spirit has not ceased to pour himself forth upon the church to enlighten confirm protect and guide he has not ceased communicating himself to each of the faithful individually either by means of the sacraments or by grace whenever he has found hearts well disposed the fathers of the church and all theologians are of one mind in recognizing in the workings of the holy ghost in the hearts of the faithful seven chief gifts wisdom understanding counsel fortitude knowledge piety and the fear of the lord the gift of wisdom helps us to judge healthily of all things concerning our last end 
the gift of understanding to apprehend the truths revealed and to submit our hearts thereto the gift of counsel to choose in all things the part best fitted for the sanctification of our souls the gift of fortitude to resist temptations and overcome dangers the gift of knowledge to discern the best means of sanctifying ourselves the gift of piety or godliness causes us to love religion and the practices having reference to divine worship the gift of the fear of the lord turns us aside from sin and from whatever may displease god they that are according to the flesh mind the things that are of the flesh but they that are according to the spirit mind the things that are of the spirit for the wisdom of the flesh is death but the wisdom of the spirit is life and peace trinity sunday the holy trinity is one only god in three persons the father the son and the holy ghost equal in all things and co-eternal the father gives being to the son and the holy ghost proceeds from the father and the son the most adorable truly of all mysteries and likewise the most impenetrable st anselm has endeavored to explain it from a single point of view only and has accomplished this in a masterly yet necessarily insufficient manner the father he says cannot exist a single instant without knowing himself because in god to know is to exist even as to will is to act this knowledge personified in the word his son the son is then co-eternal with the father the father and the son cannot exist a single instant without loving each other their mutual love is again personified because in god to love is still to exist god being love itself this third person thus co-eternal with the other two persons is the holy ghost but the inhabitants with god can alone understand these wonders and they understand because they see them the free thinker surrounded by the mysteries of nature and who is to himself a complete mystery is not willing to admit of any in religion i only wish to believe he says what i understand the poor fool would not believe much were he taken at his word he would neither believe in the food he takes seeing that he could not explain how it imparts nourishment nor in the light of the sun since he does not apprehend how it brings him into relation with distant objects nor even in his own arguments since he does not comprehend how his mind evokes and gives them shape literally speaking there exist no mysteries there are only truths but truth becomes a mystery to himself who does not understand it writing is a mystery to one who knows not how to read it ceases to be so to any one who has received instruction according as we educate the soul and widen the measure of knowledge mysteries begin to disappear in proportion therefore is it that there are no mysteries in heaven because the angels and the blessed behold with open gaze the objects whereof we now possess but the mysterious definition to deserve to behold them one day in their heavenly company one condition is requisite namely to adore them meanwhile with steadfast and perfect faith in the word of god which proposes them for our belief in the realm of nature a mystery is a truth not understood which one believes withal because one sees it in the sphere of religion a mystery is a truth not understood which one believes because god has revealed it reflection wherefore rebel against the word of god is it not as if the clay should rebel against the potter and the work should say to the worker thereof thou understandest not corpus christi till the thirteenth century the church had not thought of establishing a special festival in honor of the blessed sacrament 
being satisfied with celebrating on holy thursday the institution of this divine mystery at that period however as heresiarchs dared to attack the real presence of jesus christ in the eucharist and numerous miracles and special revelations had occurred to concentrate the attention of the christian world on this dogma pope urban the fourth decreed in twelve forty four that a special feast should be instituted which by its solemnity and pomp should be as a protestation in favor of the unwavering faith of the church and should at the same time offer an honorable reparation for the blasphemies of impious men but this pontiff happening to die soon after the bull had not all the effect he intended and it was only after the council of vienna held in thirteen thirty two that the feast of the blessed sacrament or corpus christi was definitely established throughout the catholic world the holy council of trent newly approved in a formal and earnest manner both the worship itself and its attendant pomp the feast of corpus christi is then a solemn act of faith in the real presence of jesus christ in the blessed eucharist and this belief to which the church attaches an importance of the highest moment is the very groundwork of catholicity or rather is the very essence of all christianity for if jesus christ be not present really and corporally under the elements of bread and wine as he has himself formerly told us his word is no longer reliable he is no longer god and there remains a religion not save a beautiful but sterile philosophy which each one can remodel after his own mind if it be allowable as protestants contend to interpret in a purely allegorical sense words of such clearness that there are not throughout the whole of the gospel any more positive or precise it is permissible to interpret everything at will and the gospel remains an enigma the solution whereof is nowhere to be found it is furthermore the intention of the church to make an avowal of her love and gratitude to our saviour jesus christ and to offer reparations for all the profanations and sacrileges to which this adorable sacrament has been exposed reflection o weak-hearted and lukewarm christians o ye infidels unbelievers and heretics of all ages if you did but know the gift of god you would perhaps have asked of him and he would have given you living water end of section one recording by maria therese